Thanks for downloading and welcome to Take Orally, the podcast from Dream, Queen's Medical Centre, Nottingham. In this episode, we'll be discussing neurosurgery for the emergency department. This is a live recording, one of the academic meetings at Dream. As ever, all information is correct to the time recording. Any guidelines mentioned are correct for Nottingham University Hospital's NHS Trust. Other trust guidelines may vary. All views and opinions are the speaker's own. Yeah, should start. Okay, so, um, hi, so most of you know me. Uh, my name's Andrew, one of the neurosurgical trainees. Um, so thank you for actually asking me to come and do this session. Uh, and I'm, go- I'm basically going to spend the next hour talking about neurosurgery um, and some of the things that you might come across in the emergency department and, uh, uh, and go from there. So it was actually quite a difficult presentation to make, actually, because obviously you're seeing a lot of neurosurgical patients, so I don't want to sort of go over old ground too much. Um, so basically the aims are to try and add to what you already know and assess with the neurosurgical patients um, I think with any specialty, one of the difficulties is, is that you'll see a lot of patients with similar diagnoses that are managed in quite different ways. And it was basically to try and give some insight into the neurosurgical decision making behind why I might do this for one patient and this for another. And then I, I think neurosurgery is something that's quite, um, not a lot of people will get a sustained or deep sort of involvement with it at any stage of training so there are some things just for interest really just to show what happens to the patients after uh, they leave the emergency department so these were the things I was going to cover so it's not an exhaustive list by any means um, but since starting neurosurgery training the way I look at CT heads has changed a lot so just some of the things that we look for or an approach and then traumatic conditions Um, neurovascular problems and then hydrocephalus and and shunts as well. So CT heads, um, it is important to have a system. I think we, um, for chest x-rays, are very comfortable having a sort of an ABCD approach. Um, I don't think it really is that well publicised or taught about having systems for CT heads. Is that fair to say, would you say? Or... um, I mean, it's symmetrical, so that's, that helps. Um, one, of the, one of the systems that you see is this blood can be very bad, so you look for blood and then cisterns. Um, B is brain, uh, sort of for strokes, ventricles and bones, which is a very good sort of general way to look for different pathology. Um, but actually, most of the people you refer to will be looking at the scan in a sort of a specific way, and most people will look from bottom to top. Now, is that what you would find yourself doing with uh, with a CT head, if it's if you scan somebody, yeah, yeah, and I think I think I think that's fair, and that, I mean, that, and it's sort of the diagnosis is what people go after. Um, but a lot of um, you know, when I started, people look from bottom to top, basically in the order of an impending crisis. So the first thing that you'll look at would be so what's at the bottom that we always worry about. So brainstem and there's a form of magnum, basically, is, is this patient coning. So the form of magnum is basically the first thing that anybody will look at. And you can see here, um, you know, so it's dark, the CSF, this is a normal looking happy form of magnum with sort of medulla becoming the spinal cord here and CSF around it. And you compare it to this one, this, this person's either sort of dead or impending and it's just a form of magnum full of brain. 
So the first thing to look at is that. And then coming up, the next thing with the basal cisterns, so whether they are compressed or not. You know, we see blood in there um, with our subarachnoid hemorrhages, but again, as a measure of sort of ICP or uh, an impending sort of ICP crisis, it will go from having nice CSF spaces to being all compressed and greyed out. So if they're both open, then uh, you know, when you get the referral at that point, you can breed because you know they're not you know, impending uh, ICP crisis. Then as you come up, you can see the temporal lobes and if there's any uncle herniation. So the uncus being the sort of the anteromedial um, temporal lobe, uh, so your hippocampus, your amygdala, you can see it's not, it, this, this scan's obviously very pathological, but whereas you can see on this side, it's not entire normal, but it's well-defined. Here, it's all compressed and going across towards the midline. And then the things that we sort of look at a lot, that we see midline shift, and then with the strokes, which is more sort of focal um, uh, pressure, is uh, usually sort of tumours with edema or stroke, you'll lose the sulci at the top. <coughs> so basically as a scanning thing, so in, in A&E it's all very report based I guess in that you know you get a quick turnaround so you don't necessarily have to reach the, every diagnosis but if you're unsure about a patient then that's probably a good um, uh, scheme just looking from bottom to top as how worried should you be and uh, are there any signs of, of, of this, of this any, any sort of crisis in that regard. So that was just a quick um, a quick survey over how to look at CTs for uh, how, how sick is somebody and that's what most people will look at. So trauma um, makes up a big part of what we see. So I'll just go through some traumatic conditions now. Now one of the big things, I think one of the sort of common misconceptions in neurosurgery is that a lot of things are done through burr holes. This is more for interest really um, and I think the interpretation of acute and chronic blood is quite important on, on CTs. So obviously it's a density-based uh, scan. So on the left we can see very acute, very dense blood going towards what's more chronic. And anything acute, these people will be going for craniotomies because it just wouldn't come out of a burr hole. So in reality, when you go into theatre, this is what it looks like. So an dual isn't a sort of a, a fluid compartment. It looks like hard, like rock hard jam basically, and it takes quite a lot of scraping, a lot of suction and wash to actually get it to get it out. So whereas when things chronicify, one hole will do it and it'll 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 run out. So that's another thing in the the, the decision making that uh, that takes place. So jewels we know they'll commonly present with trauma. Um, this lucid interval where they're okay and then they'll drop off and have uh, a low GCS. And obviously you see this a lot and it's, uh, there's not too much that I can sort of add, but I guess the things to be aware of is the exodural is essentially an anatomical description of where the blood is. So the way that the blood gets there is quite different you can have you know, an injury that ruptures a vessel and you have high pressure blood expanding in the exodural space causing a big problem, um, which we classically see in the textbooks, the middle meningeal artery, etc. But you will have some exodurals and where it is a fracture 
and like any other fracture it will bleed and it will just be a fracture hematoma which is sort of a lot more low volume, low pressure in that extradural space. So things with assessment is the time from the injury to the image is actually very important and when between when they actually injured themselves and when you scanned them how quickly has that blood accumulated um, and that will uh, you know in correlation with the clinical signs give some indication as to how um, how severe or what the progress progression may likely be one thing that we will look at is the location and you may see that even a small exodural in the right location, such as this one on the bottom right, may be taken more seriously for observation in that you have your transverse sinus just across there. So is this you know, a severe venous hemorrhage that's going into the exodural space? So even if it's smaller in some locations, there might be just in the decision-making, do we need to watch this one more care carefully because of where it is and the potential complications? And as you know, so treatment is a craniotomy to get it out. Um, if it's big enough, you will take it out regardless of their, of their GCS, um, if they're well at that point. Um, some smaller ones you can observe, um, and if you're suspecting that it's not necessarily, like you say, a, a big ruptured vessel, and it is just a fracture hematoma, then they could just be observed, observed like, a, like a head injury would be. Does that all make sense so far? Um, so acute subdurals are a very diverse group of injuries actually and I think it's, it's, it's a bit deceptive in that the, the, the subdural hematoma is, uh, draws a lot of attention, the actual physical clot, um, but there's a couple of things to be aware, aware of with these. So again, they would normally be a history of trauma, there might be headaches, low GCS, um, they can have focal deficits. But I think it's the, it's the pathology that's quite important in that the blood can get there with, you know, it can be a direct injury to the brain parenchyma and that will bleed, or in a similar way to the chronic subdurals, we'll see the bridging veins will rupture and that will cause the acute subdural blood. But I think it's this aspect of that almost by definition in a way there will be some associated underlying injury um, that uh, is not so easily appreciated on the scan. And in treatment it's a decision of, to, of what is causing the patient's clinical condition. So if there is huge mass effect and you think this is from the clot then yes you have to take it out. If there's sort of mild symptoms or they're not due to the clot, but actually this underlying brain injury, then it's a monitoring, um, uh, a monitoring situation. And you often see it with alcoholics, really. They can, I think with the atrophic brain, they tolerate quite big acute subdurals. So we'll have acute subdurals on the ward that look quite well. And if you can conservatively manage them, then you can allow this acute, congeal blood to become chronic and then offer them a smaller operation down the line. So we may actually admit some of these and then discharge them and then rescan them a week or a week or two weeks later and then if they um, have then converted to uh, a chronic subdural and then they're still having headaches then you can you can take those out with burr holes.
So the, there's, there's some criteria that were made in sort of 2006. It's a, called the Bullock criteria, which, which basically just explains what, what, what I was saying there, and it just dichotomizes it in terms of the size of the clot and the, the GCS. So people who have a big clot, it's going, it should come out regardless. So they, these are the, 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 um, the guidelines that they use. Now, depending on whether they have uh, a GCS above eight and they maintain their own airway, they may be somebody that you, you, you take it out and then observe them on the ward. Or if they've got a low GCS, then there'll be somebody going to ITU and you can uh, monitor their ICP with an uh, ICP monitor. And there's a trial going on at the moment as to whether you actually leave the bone flap in or out, uh, which if, if you're a bit unsure. But then if they're, if they're awake, then, uh, or if it's a small clot, then it comes down to whether they're awake or not. And then essentially, this down here is more head injury uh, management. So you may end up treating them more like a traumatic brain injury with no mass lesion. Um, and then if they're, if they're awake, you can just observe them conservatively. So it's, it's this, to, it's this um, distinction between what is the underlying brain injury and what is the clot that actually decides management. So you may see a lot of acute subdurals managed very differently, and it's, it's, it's this really that we're referring to. Does that make sense? So chronic subdurals, you do see a lot. Um, again, elderly comorbid patients on um, anticoagulants. A lot of the time you won't have a good history of trauma. Um, but incidental small things will cause it and we have three options really with treatment conservative we don't necessarily do anything for them uh, just observe dexamethasone is something that we do use which there's again another big national trial going on about this um, because the, the continued proliferation of blood um, is thought to be due to an inflammatory process at the sort of the dual membranes. So trying to arrest that can help. So some people we may just offer dexamethasone and see how they go. And then you know you can you can drain it with, with burr holes. I guess it's a fairly open and shut case from an assessment point of view. Uh, I guess the things to just be aware of is that people with bilaterals, bilateral subdurals, the the scans are often quite deceptive and they can have quite a lot of mass effect. It doesn't because I mean they won't necessarily get midline shift. Um, and uh, they can be quite unwell. So they're taken quite, considered quite serious and urgent. Um, and if you drain one side, if they're a bit unequal, you can make the other side bigger. Um, so as, as you release uh, that pressure. Um, and this is a procedure where we don't actually find a bleeding point or we don't really uh, address any bleeding. We just wash it out and fill, it, fill the space with saline with a drain and hope the brain re-expands. So we've really got to consider what is that subdural made of? Is it just a, a high groma? Is it CSF? Um, and will that brain re-expand afterwards? Because um, they may not always do that. So the thing with trauma, uh, traumatic brain injuries, which we see uh, a lot of. The people with sort of low GCS usually requires a significant mechanism, and I guess the issue here is that they will have a lot of other other issues. A, the sort of the core concept is so primary and secondary injury. I guess is that something that you sort of think about or aware of with head injuries? 
Yeah. Um, so basically, the primary injury is what happens when somebody hits their head, and we can't do anything about that. We can't unhit people's heads. But it's about the second secondary injury that we have to address. So um, hypoxia, edema, ischemia, all these things that are the sequelae of, uh, of a head injury. Now, essentially, uh, which you see on the trauma courses, you know, looking after A, B, and C is the best thing you can do for D. Um, and I'll go on to talk about the sort of different things that we can address to try and help with that. Um, this is a slide just about diffuse axonal injury. So it's something that you you see reported a lot, and it's it's um, uh, often quite unexciting to look at. Um, so I was going to go through what, what you see with it. And now essentially it is what it says on the tin. It's a, it's a diffuse injury and normally from uh, trauma, uh, rotational uh, injuries. And people will have a low GCS and the scan might not be that impressive. Essentially what, what you look for is, is areas where this, the, this shearing effect is, quite, um, uh, is, is most, most easily occurs. So the way that we sort of look at how severe a DII will be is based on um, these three locations, which is what we call Adam's classification, which was, I mean, Adam's was a pathologist, so it's not a radiological thing, but you do, it correlates radiologically. Um, and the most obvious place that you'll see it is at the grey-white junction. It's not often this, this, um, this obvious. And this little dot is more akin to what we see. But where you've got, you know, your cell bodies and your axons are, that sort of interface is where you'll most often get um, uh, get shearing and some hemorrhagic foci. Um, and then it progressively is worse if you see these dots of hemorrhage at the uh, corpus callosum and then at the brainstem. And the mortality is quite high if you have sort of brainstem hemorrhages. So it's this issue of preventing secondary injury. And we need to control the intracranial pressure, as I said, edema is one thing, and it all comes down to the Munro-Kelly doctrine of your brain being fixed box, you have brain, CSF, blood, and they will exit the cranium in this order. So your venous blood will come out first, then your CSF, and then if the pressure's high enough, it will stop arterial blood flow, and then at the end you cone. Um, so there are simple things that we can do to just try and aid this and relieve this pressure. So in these polytraumas, trying to get collars off as quickly as possible is, is very important um, to aid venous drainage and um, people lying at 30 degrees, again, not to compromise arterial inflow, but just enough so venous drainage is, is, uh, is allowed. And sedation, paralysis, reduce the metabolic requirements, and keep the CO2 at a lower end of normal, just to prevent any uh, excessive dilatation of the intracranial vessels. So these are all quite, these are all things that you'll see in resource, and so the anaesthetists, if they're aware of it, they will try and uh, control the CO2. Um, it's difficult to get spinal clearance so early um, in the in A&E setting, but these are things to be just keeping in the, in the mind. And then we'll take them up to ICU. So this is our intracranial pressure monitor. So um, it is you know, drilling a, a small hole uh, in the cranium and inserting this yellow wire. 
uh, and this will give us uh, a real-time reading of ICP. And what we're aiming for is a good cerebral perfusion pressure. So with the arterial line, they can measure the mean arterial pressure. You subtract the ICP and that gives you the perfusion pressure. And those are often the targets that ITU will, um, uh, will look at. And if all that fails, then that's when they'll go to theatre. So, so we'll do a bifrontal decompressive craniectomy, um, which is something that's, uh, you know, we know it saves lives and it lowers ICP. A lot of people who require it will end up very disabled. Um, so it's trying to get family involved early is important and knowing what their wishes may be, because a lot of people wouldn't wish to have it. Um, and the evidence, you know, it, it shows us that, but I think it's, it's a case-by-case case thing and, uh, and having those discussions. And we will see people up on the ward and you will see big defects like this um, and months down the line they could have it replaced with a, a custom-built plate. Um, but you'll see some people are quite happy like this guy. Um, and it's a, good, it's a good way of assessing actually, so people who have these, um, one of the things that we assess is actually what their, bone, what their craniectomy site is like. People after the head injuries can develop things like hydrocephalus and you know, their, their site will be bulging and, uh, and it can be quieter. We've got somebody on the ward at the moment who's had one on the side, it's bulging and their motor strip is caught at the edge of the craniectomy. So when it bulges it's weak so, and uh, you know, so you have to try and get them uh, get them fixed when you can. Does that all make sense? I know a lot of it will probably be some things you already know. Is there any questions? Um, so in Pete, I've seen kids with skull flaps and they'll take them out and leave it in the abdo for a short Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the difference between that and the more significant craniotomy? So, no, it's, it'll, be, it'll be the same. Um, so in paediatrics, you do see that they'll keep the flap alive in their abdominal wall and it'll stay vascularised and then later down the line they'll they'll do that. They don't do that with adults, so with adults they'll just throw the bone away and then they'll have a, a fine cut CT and then they'll make a custom built plate and that will be put in uh, months down the line. So yeah, paediatrics is a bit different but it's, it's, it's quite cool that they keep it alive there. Is that just because children are still growing into their family? Yeah, I, th I think it's, it, it is a, a bit of an odd thing how they stay vascularised because even when you put a bone back in a craniotomy, you've completely cut it off from the rest of the bone but they do they do heal and fuse and I think it's the the scalp vasculature that will do it so it's it'll be a similar principle that that they that they can keep them alive in the abdominal wall um, so so yeah but in adults you don't you don't really see that so neurovascular cases we'll go on to this so subarachnoid hemorrhage um, again we see a lot of these um, presenting in lots of different ways, headache predominantly, but you will see some people just collapse or have seizures. And we'll diagnose it most often with CT and I'll have lumbar puncture to, uh, if that's negative, after 12 hours um, to allow the bilirubin to accumulate and, and then diagnose it. So based in our, in our treatment, um, the first thing is finding out why they've bled. Most often there will be an aneurysm underlying it uh, or some sort of vascular abnormality. Sometimes we won't find anything um, and they will just have a small bit of blood and perimetrium cephalic essentially does just mean around the, around the midbrain 
and in those patients the risk of re-bleeding essentially returns back to the normal population. Um, and then occasionally we'll get some weird and wonderful things like this reversible cerebral vasoconstriction syndrome and then the, the neurologist will take it on from there. Um, there was actually a paper recently in the BMJ, somebody developed this after eating a chilli, I don't know if you saw that, he had the world's hottest chilli and, that, and that's what he developed essentially, he had the sort of subarachnoid symptoms. Um, and then we'll go on to diagnose on a CT angiogram, sometimes MR angiogram or uh, catheter one, so that's digital subtraction angiogram that will go, um, which is the gold standard really. So I think the, the issues with subarachnoid hemorrhage, so I guess they come through the department quite quickly. Um, so there are a few things really just to be aware of. And I think this, so we grade them. Um, there are a few grading systems and the WFNS is the most commonly used one, which is basically a, a clinical one based on GCS and deficits. And the this is a slide I, I always, if, I, if I do a teaching session because I think it's quite striking in that people who come in with no deficit and you know just they're presenting complaint and they're found with with a subarachnoid hemorrhage, 15% will have a poor outcome. So a poor outcome in this was um, based on the Glasgow outcome score, which was between dead or quite severely disabled. So there are a group of patients that would take quite seriously on the ward because even if they're well they can go off very very quickly and become quite profoundly unwell and disabled um, and you, you see it with people who um, you know even ha you haven't didn't see any blood on the scan you don't see uh, you know they seem quite well and then they'll all of a sudden go off so they're, they're, they're a group of patients to take very seriously from the start really and initiating all the different precautions that we can for them so the first thing is hydrocephalus, and I think, so on the, on the ward, I think most people, if, if, if a subarachnoid hemorrhage comes to the ward, the first thing that you think is, has this patient got hydrocephalus? Um, so in terms of the early signs of hydrocephalus, so on examination, what, what can you find that might suggest this person has hydrocephalus? So yeah, yeah. So that's that's fair. So raising kernel pressure. So if their headache's worse than lying down, they'll have they'll have they'll have a headache. Um, there is one thing that we'd always look for on cranial nerve exam. What's that, sir? So papilledema, yeah. So um, and we should always do that in subarachs, not necessarily not in an emergency department setting, but they can all get retinal hemorrhages. So they might so we call Tursen syndrome, so vitreous hemorrhages. So we look at those. Um, so it's, 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 on your, it's on your ocular exam, that's right. But um, so restricted upward gaze. So for the same way that kids sunset and they'll look down, adults, it's, anatomically it's the same that compression of your, sort of your dorsal midbrain um, will restrict their upward gaze. So if we shunt people for MPH, that's something we'll look on the ward round and that's an early sign of hydrocephalus. So if, when you're examining them, that's one bit to sort of just take extra attention to because you know, when you're referring, you can say, well, actually, I think this person's clinically got signs of early hydrocephalus. Um, and what do you see radiologically? So before you've got your report, you want to think, have they got hydrocephalus? What signs can you look for that they could be developing hydrocephalus on the scan? 
So, so you'll get big ventricles, but before they become obviously big, the thing that you'll see is dilation of the temporal horns. So edema is, yes, acute, acute hydrocephalus. You'll see that periventricular lucency. So they say that CSF's trying to escape out of the ventricle, basically. But this area of the ventricle will dilate first. And then you, you'll see your, your third become plump as well. Um, so that's really the sort of the early signs. If somebody's got headache and restricted up gaze, then you can look at the scan and think, well, is there, is there any signs radiologically that this person's got acute hydrocephalus? And that's something that when you're referring would be, uh, I mean, we'll, we'll look at the scan anyway, but it's, it's important to take a look at. And acute hydrocephalus is, is very, very nasty. Um, and these people can just go. So this is what I was referring to, if it shows up, is that when you're sort of at the, at the level of the, of the temporal lobe, so just above the tent here, these areas ordinarily, sort of in young people, that will be um, sort of either very, very small or you won't be able to see this temporal horn. But when these become visible, then that's a sign that there could be a hydrocephalus developing. And your third ventricle in the middle, as you come up slightly, so these are still big temporal horns, um, normally that will just be a, a sort of a, a thin slit-like structure but if that's becoming plump uh, and more rounded then again that's a sign that the person's developing hydrocephalus and this is the periventricular lucency that we're talking about so elderly people who have big ventricles they might, like, they might have big ventricles but you wouldn't see these changes so in an elderly person if you start seeing this lucency around there then you can think actually that suggests that there is some, there is some pressure does that all make sense? Um, so those things to look for to add to the assessment. Um, so what are the other things that we're looking for in subaracs that are going off that could, that some of them could definitely happen down here? So yeah, so vasospasm, and again, that would, um, so that can happen at any point in the, in the acute phase, more commonly sort of seven to 10 days post bleed is what we have. But again, we've got somebody on the ward who presented late and we've had them for a day and it looks like they're over having vasospasm today. Um, so it's, again... GCS. So, yeah, so we'll have dropping GCS. Um, so, what's that, sorry? So, yeah, yeah, they can have uh, cardiac problems. Seizures is one that we see a lot. And, and then the other thing is re-bleeding. So, um, they... And, and re-bleeds tend to be catastrophic. Um, so the things that we do, so the, 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 and this is the, re, the reason for a lot of the initial, initial management, um, flat bed rest, we keep people flat just to stop them straining um, and we keep them you know, well on G's and laxatives um, to stop any sort of exertional thing that may, uh, may precipitate a bleed because the assumption is they've got a clot in that aneurysm and that's what's hot stopping them bleeding at the moment but if you do anything to disrupt that then they could bleed again. Um, and controlling blood pressure, seizures again, and vasospasm. So that's why we start the nimodipine um, as soon as we can, um, which is, you know, sort of a, it's a calcium channel blocker, but cerebrovascularly selective, and we keep them well hydrated. And if we, if we find, if we suspect vasospasm, then, then we, um, they'll go to our HDU, and the treatment there is what we call triple H therapy. So we aim for a higher MAP, we make sure they're hypervolemic, we just give them lots of fluid, and, uh, and with that, you should have a hemodilution, so apparently the, the rheology of the blood is improved and they'll flow through the brain better. But all of that is really what we do from the start, so if a subarachnoid hemorrhage comes in, then 
you know, you keep it flat, nimodipine, lots of fluids, and then, and then you, try and, you try and prevent it. And then a lot of them are subject to uh, electrolyte abnormalities. So just a bit about the treatment. So a lot of them will go for coiling. So it's a, an angio, uh, interventional radiology procedure, a bit like the cardiac angiograms, and they'll go up into the blood vessels and fill it full of uh, platinum coils. Um, and they're about £2,000 a, a go, I think. So you see some people with like golf ball-sized coilings in their head, and it's, it's, a, uh, it's a, lot of, uh, a lot of coils, a lot of platinum. And then it will exclude it from the, from the circulation. Uh, to try and stop it bleeding again. And the other thing that we rarely see acutely now is clipping, so an, an actual craniotomy and, uh, and physically placing a clip across the aneurysm neck. Um, but the reason is, um, so this big trial, which was done in 2005, and basically showed that coiling has a better independent survival. So we almost never clip people acutely now, only if there's a, you know, a very, very difficult aneurysm or if it's un impossible to, if there's a clot associated with it, impossible to take that out without, um, uh, without clipping it. Uh, so that's what they go for. Happy with that? Any questions at all, subratna hemorrhage? No? Um, sorry. So... CTA, it won't necessarily change it. So if somebody comes in at midnight, it wouldn't necessarily change much um, overnight. What, um, so the CTA should happen before like the morning time, so then they can get listed and coiled straight away. Because the re-bleed risk is, is really is high initially. So um, you just need to have them ready to go. It will change... So a lot of the time we'll get a repeat plain CT. So we think we've got some hydrocephalus, we can see that progressing. Um, and in people who are going to theater, then it would change what happens with them. So if you say you've got an, you know, a clot, if people have had an aneurysm and it's, so it may have bled in a minor way before, um, then they'll, have, they'll get sort of brain fibroids around it and you can have a, essentially a subarachnoid bleed directly into parenchyma. So if you're going to take out a clot, you'd want to know if there's an aneurysm underneath it um, because it would change your approach in theatre. Um, so I guess that's where it would change it acutely, but for a sort of your run-of-the-mill subarach, then it just needs to be done by the morning time. Um, so ICHs, again, uh, we see a lot of these, and I think these are what something that, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think some people find confusing with what the neurosurgical advice is as to those we take and those we don't. Um, essentially, it's, um, yeah, it's a common form of stroke, as we know, um, and it will present with quite alarming symptoms sometimes, sometimes like a stroke, sometimes they will get a bad headache. Um, and these are the sort of the, the most common places that we see it. We'll see a lot of basal ganglia bleeds, and a lot of them will be hypertensive uh, in origin. But they can be caused by different, uh, different things. There can be vascular malformations underneath. It can be after an infarct. You know, we see it with people who have been thrombolized quite a lot. Um, or again, like I said, aneurysm rupture or tumours um, can cause it. And I think the treatment is... Basic, 
mostly based on these two trials, and these are two of the biggest neurosurgical trials done actually, and they're, they're, they're basically looking at early surgery against sort of conservative management, and in people who are awake, so uh, E2, M5, um, and if it's above the tent, spontaneous, not due to any, any, any other vascular problem, uh, like an aneurysm. And actually the, the, the issue is, is that surgery doesn't change sort of the death or disability. You don't reverse neurological deficits by taking the blood out um, and you, you expose them to the, the risks of an operation. So unless there is some mass effect that's causing them to drop their GCS, then you wouldn't, off, you, you wouldn't take these out really. Um, so you can have quite impressive scans and they'll say, well, it's not for neurosurgery. And it's, it's, it's basically because you won't reverse what's happened. And that's quite well studied. But in the posterior fossa, it's a, a different ball game altogether, really. And when you're looking at the scans with these people who have these post-fossa bleeds, actually the thing to look at is the fourth ventricle, because that's what makes the decisions. So if somebody's got a, a post-fossa ICH, again, in your sort of scheme of how, to, how worried to be about the patient, look at the CSF near it because that's what's going to decide how urgently or if anything's going to be done at all. So it was graded, I think this was a 2001 paper, um, basically if it's not affecting the fourth ventricle, a lot of time you use conservative management, so again it's a stroke, uh, a stroke patient. If there is some partial effacement, some people won't get away with that and some people will. If they, so they'll, they'll normally be admitted for observation and if, it's, you know, and if they go off because it's obstructing their CSF coming out, then they'll go for an EVD. And if not, then, uh, then you'll have to take the clot out physically. And if you can't see their fourth ventricle on their scan, then that's a patient who needs to come to neurosurgery um, and they, they'll, they'll need some treatment. And we'll sometimes see that with people with the post-fossa strokes. So it's something to w look out for. These people who have posterior circulation stroke symptoms when they have their scan. Again, it might not necessarily diagnose a stroke. Um, but if they've got edema there um, and uh, it's affecting the fourth ventricle, then they're people who uh, will be worth referring. And this is basically a, a, a description of, of, what this was, of what this was saying, that you, know, you can have a clot with very little edema, fourth ventricle's open, they'd be uh, one that would probably be more ideal for the stroke team. But if it's causing some edema and some partial effacement, you can see again here, temporal horn dilatation, it's that and the, the third's not very slit, so actually this is one where it's open, but you can actually see some hydrocephalic effects from it. So that person might actually progress to actually need some neurosurgery. And then this one, you just can't see it, so they, they probably won't get away with that. Um, so they're just decision-making things that might help you direct like how urgently or how unwell you think these people are. Can you see, so I'm not blocking it for you. And the final thing for the vascular ones is uh, decompressive craniectomy and stroke. Um, basically, we will get a lot of referrals for this. Um, and this, this is just a nice guideline, so you can see this. But just as, as, a, as a refresher, it's essentially young people. Um, so you have to be under 60. Um, and the, they have to be referred within 24 hours and, uh, and operated within 48 um, now the NHSS doesn't use GCS, but basically it's if they're E3. So actually, it's quite inclusive criteria. If they're a little bit drowsy and they're a young MCA stroke, then they're somebody who uh, who 
should be considered really for, for neurosurgery uh, for observation so that's a but that's a fairly open and shut case and a lot of them the stroke team would advise on that anyway does that all make sense for the vascular things any any questions <coughs> about about that or anything I've missed no. cool so final section so hydrocephalus and shunt so um, hydrocephalus um, and, and, and shunts really a lot of people come through with shunts and they're not not you know they're, they are the bane of our lives in a, in a way because um, things can go wrong one thing um, acute hydrocephalus I think one, one thing that probably is a misconception I, again correct me if I'm wrong is that shunts are used acutely for um, for hydrocephalus that if people have it then they'll, they'll get a shunt but actually all the people who come to the department with a sort of acute hydrocephalus they'll go and they'll get one of these um, which is an external ventricular drain so EVD um, which is a quick quicker procedure um, often done in sort of in life saving circumstances really um, it is you know one hole um, often done just by sort of anatomical landmarks and you cannulate the ventricle and relieve ICP very quickly and you can, and then we, me we measure them. Uh, you can, they function as an ICP monitor as well. And we can drain, so this person's obviously had a big blood load, um, and it will drain into this chamber, and this numerical scale will allow us to set whatever pressure ECSF will drain out of, and we can help, we can then decide whether this person will need a shunt as an ongoing, um, as an ongoing thing. Uh, or not, and we can take the EVD out, and the hydrocephalus is resolved. Um, we can use them. We can give antibiotics through them. So we give vancomycin or gentamicin directly into the ventricle through them, um, and we can check if the CSF is infected, taking samples off. So the people who come through will go for this procedure, not a shunt, and this will then help us guide whether somebody needs a shunt later down the line. So in terms of uh, in terms of classifying, again, this is the system that we're probably more we're probably akin to using is communicating and non-communicating. So, non-communicating being an obstructive cause, essentially a clot or a tumor or something in there. Um, communicating infection, um, subarachnoid hemorrhages. This is what they uh, this is what they can cause. I think just. I mean, this is things that you'll, these are things that you'll be aware of, I'm sure. Um, just one thing to think about is, can you see all four ventricles? If somebody's hydrocephalic, you know, if we diagnose it on a non-contrast CT, there can be obstructive causes causing it. And you can, the lateral ventricles draw your attention quite a lot. But actually, if you can't see a third ventricle, you can't see a fourth ventricle, then you have to think, you know, is there something there obstructing? And we've, we, we've had that before. And even if you resolve it, the, the morbidity can be quite high. Um, so your, your fornix um, goes around your third ventricle. So acute hydrocephalus or things that go wrong around there can um, remove somebody's short-term memory. So people who have acute hydrocephalus, we had a lady who had given birth three weeks before and then had acute hydrocephalus. And again, it was one of these where big ventricles, but the third, the fourth, you couldn't really see. And she went from GCS 15 to three in a second and sort of sat to 40. And then afterwards, her short-term memory was, was, you know, she couldn't remember giving birth and she couldn't form those memories either. So even when you resolve the ICP crisis, there can still be quite profound morbidity. 
um, from it. So that's just something, if somebody's got hydrocephalus, can you see all four ventricles? Is this communicating or, or not? Because then you might need to investigate and, and uh, do something further. So shunts. Um, so shunts, there are lots of different types. Um, we can shunt from any sort of CSF space um, virtually. So um, most commonly we'll see it in lateral ventricles, fourth ventricle. Some people have cysts of CSF in the head and you can put shunts from there. Uh, we have lumbar, lumbar shunts. And some people who've got syringomyelia, you can put a shunt into the cyst inside the spinal cord and shunt from there. Um, so if somebody has a shunt, um, it's by no means like an open and shut case as to what, what shunt it is. And then you can um, shunt into different destinations. Um, so peritoneum is the most common. Sometimes we'll go into the pleura in the lungs. Um, we can shunt into the right atrium, so it'll go into the uh, into the um, into the veins here, SVC, um, and the subarachnoid space. So you can uh, some mainly with these syringo ones, but you can just shunt it into the other part of the spine. Um, and then there are lots of different types, so which can be sort of confusing. So most people will have a fixed, I put the ones in bold that are most common, um, a fixed valve. Most and you'll have low, medium, and high pressure. So this is the openings pressure of the valve. So at what pressure will it will it drain? Some people have programmable ones, um, so you can adjust the setting of how, how much pressure is required to drain. Um, and then some people might have what's called an anti-siphon device. So they've had shunts put in but then there's a difference in how much it drains related to posture so when they're lying down the shunt's working fine but if they stand up then they will uh, drain uh, a lot and get really bad low pressure headaches and uh, this anti-siphon device just adds a lot of pressure when they're upright versus lower down so it's um, so there are a lot of different combinations that you can that you can see with them uh, does that make sense and this is basically how they're, how they're set up. Um, there are three, three components, really. The proximal catheter going into the brain, into the ventricle, or the, the CSF space it's intended to. Um, the valve, although sometimes lumbar ones might be valveless, uh, so I didn't put that on, but it might just be a tube. Um, and then the distal catheter, which will go um, from the valve into your, sort of your destination cavity. There will be a burr hole here, and a lot of the valves will sit in the burr hole, so they'll look a bit like this. Most often it will be sort of three fingers above and behind the ear where it is, so that's the area that you're feeling, and it'll be like a hockey-shaped scar, and you can feel the valve there. Or if they've got one of these programmable ones, then it'll be a bit lower down. And that's the basic setup. Just for, Has anybody seen a shunt put in before? So just for, I mean, in case you see people in a sort of an early post-operative period, this is, this is how you get the tubing from one end to the other. Um, and it's quite brutal. Some people struggle to watch it, actually, because you've essentially got a long metal rod. It's like a blunt, a blunt spike, basically. And you just force it along the subcutaneous tissues. So you can see he's, uh, or whoever's doing this is, um, there's the metal rod going underneath here and he's sort of palpating where it's going. So it's quite a painful procedure. We also have to let the anaesthetist know, and afterwards people will get some pain along the, 
along the shunt path because it, 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 it makes you sweat actually sometimes. It's quite hard to push, to push through and you're just pushing through soft tissues. Um, so people will have pain post-op after having this in. <coughs> That's just interest value really. But then they can go wrong, which is, which is the problem. Um, and it's quite difficult to, to sort of see uh, what the problem is. Now this is sort of breaking it down into how they go wrong really. Now infection is sort of the, the, the main problem uh, that diagnostically I think because people may have other symptoms and it's, it's, a, it's a balance between not ignoring the shunt and assuming it's something else but then not focusing on the shunt and missing something else. Um, and people will have mechanical problems, which will basically, as a mechanical problem, it will either be doing too much or too little. Now, if it's doing too little, then there can be lots of different reasons for that. So it could be that it's, it's blocked, for whatever reason. It could be infection. And infection commonly presents as a shunt failure. You don't you rarely see people with a shunt infection with sort of fluid sepsis or you know, spiking big temperatures and raised inflammatory markers. Um, so as soon as you've got those sorts of pictures, it's unlikely that's a shunt causing it. But if somebody has a shunt failing, then it's possible that that's an infection. A lot of the time, they can be quite indolent uh, sort of infections that, that drag on for a while and the shunt just won't be quite right and it won't quite settle um, the, the operative site. It could have been damaged. We do see trauma. Somebody recently came in, had a shunt in for many years in a car accident. Um, they've, they've jolted and then all of a sudden uh, started developing their old symptoms. Uh, and uh, and uh, there was a disconnection in the neck. Um, and then in the programmable shunts, it may just be that the, the setting is wrong for them and it may just be that it, that needs changing. Overdrainage doesn't happen uh, for as many reasons. Again, it might be the shunt setting, or it might be that somebody's got a new shunt and they're not used to it, and having this drainage is, is a bit too much for them. And then there are other things that are sort of site-specific to, uh, to, uh, to where the shunt is going. So infection, like I said, it's often there won't be any sort of systemic signs. Um, the most common ways of infecting a shunt is usually at the time of surgery. Um, it could seed from another infection or the distal end could be contaminated. So it is in the peritoneum and you can have complications with the, with the organs there. Um, if they've had surgery there recently, people have had sort of peritonitis or had, a, had abdominal surgery. You might have signs along the path. So that's a, a good thing to look at with anybody with a shunt problem. Is, is actually palpate along the path and they might see swellings or, or erythema, cutaneous signs there. Uh, and like I say, it's usually um, within sort of months of insertion, any other surgery. Those reservoirs allow us to take samples from it. So it may be something as small as taking a sample from it as infected it percutaneously. Uh, and when we investigate infections, that's what we'll, we'll often do, is take a sample from there, if we've excluded everything else. But it's something done with a bit of hesitation because you know, if you infect it by doing that, then, then that's a big deal. 
Most commonly, it will, will be skin flora, coagulase negative staph, staph aureus. Um, and we see a lot of this propioni bacterium, which is uh, a gram-positive anaerobe, a bacilli. Um, that again it takes a long time to grow, it's quite indolent and people just won't settle with it. They won't come in very unwell with it but it's just they shouldn't, won't quite function uh, and they won't be quite right. Does that make sense for that infection? Any questions about, about that? Are you more likely to get uh, infection uh, at the distal end if it's a uh, BP shunt rather than... Like oh that's a good question. Um, I'd, I'd suspect so, but it's hard, to, it's hard to say. I mean, we don't put in a lot of pleural shunts. It's usually if the abdominal site is, for whatever reason, unavailable, if they've had a lot of surgeries. Um, just more tends to happen there. Um, so you, they can sort of erode into bowel and things like that. And so, yeah, anecdotally, I, I, uh, I can't tell you. I'd suspect that so, but the numbers are so heavily biased that um, you don't, we don't see many sort of uh, plural or atrial shunts coming back infected because there just aren't as many. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's possible. Um, so if they're not draining, I guess the things to look at are, you know, what are the symptoms? Now it may be that this is in for normal pressure hydrocephalus and it's not they don't get headaches when it fails, but they just get their old MPH symptoms back. So they might just become unsteady. Um, you know, they can they can become have have lower GCS um, and present with more classical hydrocephalic uh, symptoms. Now, and it can get blocked at any point. So I've got a slide at the end which just goes through the sort of what you want to find out with the assessment. Um, in the brain, it could get bl blocked by blood so they can bleed. Um, the choroid plexus is in the ventricle, so that can wrap around and block it, and it can get blocked by brain. So those EVDs that we have for the acute hydrocephalus, you, see, you do see little bits of brain floating through the, you know, uh, through the tube, so they do have the capability of, of getting blocked by that. Um, and then the shunt path, so it can get damaged, um, it can get fractured, um, that will cause it, and then in the other, in the, wherever you put it, the destination cavity, you know, there could be a knot, there could be a kink uh, in there, or it could just be plugged again by the tissue that's in there. And then infection will block it. The other thing to be aware of is migration. So the tube can come out of the abdomen. And, you know, a lot of the people, especially the patients with uh, IIH, you know, their body habitus isn't ideal for it, and they will have... Uh, shunts that come out into the subcutaneous sort of tissues and you can you know you'll feel swelling so it might be that it's blocked because it's not it's not in the abdomen and it's there's no free flow out of it uh, and then again damage uh, and the new shunt settings that uh, that it might be a new shunt or a new shunt setting and they're just not draining enough Overdraining is kind of the opposite um, they'll get low pressure headaches um, GCS can alter that low pressure dragging the sort of brain in can cause subdural hematomas to develop as well. So if somebody's got a new shunt and they've got headaches, then uh, you know, think that you know, they could actually have a subdural on top of this. 
And then the site-specific things. So, um, you know, you can get pleural effusions if the pleural cavity isn't absorbing well enough. It can erode into viscera, into bowel. You can develop cysts. So sometimes people have a, a sort of a shunt infection will start getting cysts in the abdomen. Again, it's not necessarily, you know, they get, they've got an infected shunt, but it's not this overwhelming sepsis picture. It's sort of failure of the shunt in other ways that you really see. And then, and then ventriculatrial shunts, um, you can get nephritis with it. So if something like if it gets infected and the uh, immune complexes you can deposit in the kidneys and you can get nephritis with VA shunts. Uh, so those are just things to, specific to each type. So I think this is, this is basically the sort of a, a, a process of, of, of where, um, of, of, of a shunt failure, really the, the, the salient information. So I think really it's, it's how is it failing? Is it this infection? Is it a mechanical problem? Or is it um, something else site-specific? And if you, if, you, if you think you, can, you, you have the picture of how it's failing, then you can think, well, where is that? So do you think it's cranial, is it the valve, or is it in the abdominal or the, the, dis, the distal cavity? It's important to know what it was in for, um, because that might shoot, like, help you decide whether this clinical picture fits with that failing. Is it somebody regaining their MPH symptoms? Is it somebody with IIH who's regaining their headaches? Or is it somebody who has you know, hydrocephalus after a subarachnoid hemorrhage and they're actually becoming more hydrocephalic in a, in a more uh, dangerous way? What sort of shunt is it? So again, where is it going from? And two, what sort of valve? That's important information. People, you know, I remember uh, seeing people who've gone through scanners before with a programmable valve, I think at the airport, and it's change setting. Some things will just change settings. Um, so if it's a programmable valve, that's something else to look at. And again, is it what type of failure is it? And people with shunts do get other headaches. And I think people with shunts, you, you get an increase in, I mean, what's called shunt migraines. And people will have other types of, uh, other types of headaches. So it's worth taking that sort of headache history to see if it does fit in something else. Invariably, the, the shunt as a cause would need excluding. So I don't think, you know, they would go to the neurologist to investigate some other headache when they've got a shunt in place. But it's something to think of that, you know, this may not be their shunt. Uh, so they can come and we, we can assess and see um, what we think it is on the ward. And then sometimes we do refer on to the neurologists and they'll agree that it is a migraine or something else. So in examining them, uh, again, neurological exam, important. Um, examining the shunt path, so where it goes from, um, any swellings or signs of infection. And the other thing is, is this, the shunt reservoir, so that little bubble. So you can press those, and when you press it, it forces CSF down the distal catheter. And then when you let go, it will refill from the brain. So we often use that. Now, some, some studies say it's not necessarily the most reliable sign, um, but we do use it to, to assess. Now, if, it's, if there's one that's full and you're struggling to press it down, then you can infer from that that there's a problem distally. If you can press it down and it doesn't fill back up, you can say, well, actually, you know, there's nothing wrong with getting CSF out, but CSF isn't getting in, so there could be something cranially blocking it. Um, so... And, and, and some patients who, who sort of know their shunts, if they get bad headaches and think it's failing, they'll, they'll pump their own shunt and get rid of their, sort of their symptoms. Um, so as part of an assessment, the shunt reservoir can, uh, can help uh, just trying to de decide where this blockage is, or indeed if it's not blocked. 
Um, so there, in examination, there's some sort of specific things that you can look at. Sorry, yep. How quickly should that refill? Sorry, so it, it, so yeah, it will fill up. I mean, it doesn't necessarily spring back up, but it will just fill up as if the sort of the suction is dragging it back. So some you'll press it and it'll stay depressed for a little while and then and then just grab very slowly so it might take a couple of minutes or so. Normally if you press it it will come up in a couple of seconds and it's just a sort of a similar speed to what you're able to push it down. Um, so that's something that that you can that you can look at and, and adds to the assessment. Um, so imaging, so if you've got a shunt problem, so CT head um, they, you know, if it's not draining, it might show sort of bigger ventricles. You might have subdurals if it's draining too much or smaller ventricles. Um, the, 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 the difficulty is, is that some people will have slit ventricles. So these people with IIH who have very high pressure all the time, their ventricles will be very small. And actually, when their shunt fails, they won't, they'll be stiff and not compliant ventricles. So you can have one and their ventricles won't be big, but that doesn't necessarily reflect the pressure that's in them. So if, it's, if they've got slit ventricles or a normal ventricle size doesn't always reassure you depending on why, why, they've, why the uh, shunt was in place. So that's why it's important to have that bit of the history, why they've got it. And then we do these shunt series x-rays. So um, x-rays of the skull, sort of AP and lateral, the C-spine, again AP and lateral, we x-ray the chest and the abdomen and AP and lateral there, basically just to follow where the shunt goes. If, if it's plural, then obviously you don't need the abdomen, but just follow where the shunt goes and, uh, uh, and see if there are any break, breaks in the, in the continuity. Um, if the CT head's normal, it might not necessarily be, be necessary to do it. So I wouldn't necessarily do it routine, uh, routinely. But if you've definitely got swellings along the path, then it might be that it's fractured and that's where it is. So then it's, it's, it's reasonable to just do and you, and you might get to the diagnosis immediately. Um, one sort of caveat in as well is that, like I say, it's important to know when the shunt went in. Some people will have shunts put in when they were very, very young. Um, they've not had it revised. It's been in there for 20, 30 years. And at some point they've become independent of their shunt. So... Um, it may have fractured years ago um, and it's not a problem or in the same way it may have fractured and because it's been in there's a sort of a fibrous scarred path around it so they'll maintain CSF flow even in a shunt that looks radiologically fractured because they've essentially formed their own tube with scar tissue around where it's disconnected um, so there are some elements of interpretation of that um, but Shunt series do add to do add to the investigations, and I think I think basically it is it is a multifactorial thing, in that it's piecing all these bits together about the shunt, about the patient, and what you can see uh, to actually to actually diagnose it. If it's infection, again, it's it's this balance that you don't want to miss an infection in the CNS, um, but then by investigating it and taking samples out of the shunt, you risk introducing it. So I think would normally, unless everything else has been excluded or clinically it's nothing else, we wouldn't tap shunts without a lot of thought beforehand. Um, the infection, again, it's, they're at risk if it's, they've had something recent or uh, with the shunt or adjacent to it. Looking at the skin is important. 
looking for other signs of infection, um, especially in kids who don't localise infection very well, as you know. And um, but then you know, if somebody's un unwell from a septic point of view, then you know the shunt tap shouldn't stop. You know, life-saving antibiotics uh, being administered. Thank you very much. Does that make sense about the CSF bit? Just, yeah. Sure. Just a yeah. quick question regarding patients presenting with contusions. So contusions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. Scan, there's nothing much about contusions. Yeah. Should we be admitting these patients or any follow-up requirement for these patients? So they wouldn't normally be followed up. Please, please, please. Scan report shows contusions. So I mean, I think they'd be admitted as a head injury because they still have some risk of seizures and things with, with having contusions. So I think, uh, I don't think we'd ever say, say send them home, but just a, a short um, admission for, to make sure they don't have any complications from it, um, really. The, the group that I always, I always puzzle about them are the traumatic intracerebral hemorrhages. Yeah, yeah. Um, because I think there seems to be less evidence out there in terms of what is the best thing to do with these patients. And yeah. For the most part, in my experience, the neurosurgeons will not want to intervene no, no. Um, aggressively with them. But you know, I've, I have seen some research that says suggests that actually maybe there, sh there should be more a more aggressive approach to in terms of taking out the clots. In terms of evacuating some of these clubs. Yeah, so I'd just be interested in what your take on those patients. So most of them will be treated as a as a head injury, um, and will go to. I mean, I guess the 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 the, the, the important thing is their GCS. So if these are people going to ITU, then they'd be bolted, and uh, and uh, um, have their ICP monitored. Um, they wouldn't be taken out unless they thought it was contributing to the sort of the the actual. Uh, the, the decreased GCS and its mass effect from that. So some of it will be done radiologically, and then if we feel that you know the ICP is high and that that's part of it, then they probably have a decompressive craniectomy on the side of that clot and have that taken out. Um, but routinely, we wouldn't just take out uh, the clots there if we don't think it's 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 contributing to their sort of clinical picture. Um, so it it will vary. Those patients have a GCS less than eight, then it's too late by that point, and the damage is yeah. And the outcome doesn't make a difference. But if you intervene when they've got a sort of GCS nine through twelve, then actually yeah, you can yeah. make a big difference to yeah. So some 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 we some we would. I think it's about it's about the trend as well. You know, if we see people, we wouldn't wait for them to become comatose to to do it. Um, so we'd we'd often set sort of parameters. So if they dropped to if they if they drop to M5 or becoming significantly drowsy on the others, then 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 we may do, um, but it, it's often done on a sort of a patient by patient decision really, um, because so, because a lot, some of the neurology you won't necessarily reverse, um, and with the traumatic ones as well, you know I think I think with the GCS as well the the verbal part can be quite um, misleading because it's essentially a focal deficit as soon as you get to V1, so people can have, you know. Uh, Low GCSs, but it's 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 actually um, but the the more alert than the GCS might 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 suspect on the gross number. So it is it is a it is, it is a case by case thing really.
but we don't necessarily routinely take them out unless they are deteriorating from it. Okay. Sometimes I find it difficult to get a definite answer on whether the patient would ever be for surgery. And sometimes then when they go on to thought that you can have a conversation that they are not for surgery at that mm. point. But kind of someone who wouldn't ever be a, an abdominal surgery candidate, like from the background, they would never mm. be fit for surgery. Yeah, but yeah. it can be difficult to get that kind of documented and verbally and I just wonder, is that because it's less risky to do the surgeries than it would be to do an abdominal surgery, or is it because it needs to be discussed with the consultant, or what? what is the reasoning for that? I think partly it will be sort of one sort of discussing with seniors, but I mean, but we, we speak to the bosses regularly all the time anyway. Um, neurosurgically, we don't, with, I say withdraw, that's probably the wrong phrase, but we're quite aggressive and we do operate on a lot of people. Um, and so a, a, even, you know, sort of bad head injuries, it's very hard to prognosticate down the line. Um, so some people will be more aggressive and treat more people. So actually, at some points, it may not be uh, necessary. But if they were to deteriorate, then some people would, would, would intervene. So it's a bit like with the, with the decompressive craniectomies there. You know, um, it may be that at the time that they don't need surgery when they come in um, and then we, we monitor them and their ICP is fine. And it's quite important to have those discussions early because for that exact same reason, it's very difficult from an early stage to say, you know, would, you, would they benefit from this or not? Because you're not necessarily just talking life or death, you're talking about disability as well, which is a very sort of personal, uh, personal thing. So I don't think it's... I don't think it's an avoidance. I think it's just it's quite difficult early on, yeah. and even you know a few months ago there was new guidance with regards to head injuries from it's like a sort of a neurotrauma consortium, uh, sort of neurosurgery and anaesthetics critical care about the, the really severe head injuries, saying that they you know it's hard to prognosticate so early and writing them off and saying not for intervention don't do anything and that they should be given a, ch a chance in ITU, and then and then sort of prognosticate. So I think. In the early stages of sort of bad neurosurgical things, I think it's quite difficult to say we'd never do anything. Sometimes, you know, if you know if they're fixed dilated pupils and you know GCS3, and you know at that point and on the scan, it's it's unsurvivable and they're very comorbid. Then in those people, it might be. But I think there's just a, probably a bigger grey area for us than there is in, in abdominal surgery and other surgeries. Yeah, I think so. No, thank you, thank you. Yeah. That was the Take Orally Neurosurgery for ED podcast. You can find uh, more information, including the slides for this presentation, as well as links to guidelines mentioned at uh, takeorally.com. You can also find Take Orally on both Facebook and Twitter. Remember to subscribe on both iTunes or SoundCloud. Um, for more information about research and education opportunities within emergency medicine, acute medicine and major trauma, Dream can be found on both Facebook and Twitter.